Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. I can hear you just fine. Okay. I don't know what happened, but I just went out and came back in. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for your patience, Dr. Chapman. Uh, you're welcome. I know uh, these things are nice when they work. Right. <laughs> Some of the time. Uh, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have been a fan of your work for over 20 years. I think I discovered the five love languages uh, right in my late teens. Okay. Yeah. You got early on. I got <laughs> that's good. <early> on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good thing because I found a partner whose love languages match my own. So. Oh, okay. It's that been, makes it easier. Yes. <laughs> it was, I was so excited. Uh, I'm, I'm a parent of two now. Uh -huh. So I'm so excited uh, to learn of the release of your book, Five Traits to a Healthy Family. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's a fantastic book. I've already read it, reread it. I am dog-eared some pages that I'll come back to. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, so many nuggets. You've been involved in family counseling for 45 years, is it? Over 40? Yeah, yeah, around that, maybe a little longer. <laughs> so, so what led you to that area of service? I kind of got pushed into it, to be honest with you. Uh, I work on a church staff as an associate pastor, and I was teaching classes on marriage and family and that sort of thing. And and people wanted to talk. And uh, when I came through seminary, they didn't even offer a master's in counseling. They had about four or five classes, courses, and I took all of them just thinking, you know, I, I need to learn what I can. But I never intended to for this to be a major part of my ministry. But it turned out it became the major part of my ministry. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Year after year, it just grew and grew. So, yeah. Wow. God had his hand in that, I'm sure. Yep, you're right. Throughout your career, you have written and contributed to over 20 books, if I am accurate on that. Uh, it's a long list, I saw. Um, and as a publisher myself, I connect with aspiring authors all the time. So I would love to know, what is it that inspires you to write each book? You know, all of my books grew out of my counseling. They're on different topics, obviously, but uh, they grew out of my counseling. And I, I had discovered insights uh, while counseling other people and found them to be helpful. And at some juncture, I felt like, you know, if I could put this concept in a book, I could help a lot of people. I would never have time to see in my office. So that's what motivated me to, to write all the books that I've written. Uh, it's just an effort to touch more lives than I can touch on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But uh, I didn't I didn't really set out to be an, an author. I mean, that was not, I, I didn't even think about that for a number of years until after I had began to discover some of these concepts in my, in my counseling room and also in teaching on marriage and family uh, that I realized these things could help other people. So that, that's what motivated me. Yeah, and you saw 
repeating patterns, I would assume, probably pretty early on, right, as you were meeting yeah. with people? Yeah, you know, the, the love languages, for example, when I discovered that uh, the first time years ago, that what made one person feel loved didn't make another person feel loved. Because the husband, would, she would say, I feel like he doesn't love me. And he would say, I don't understand that. I do this and this and this and this and this. Why would you not feel loved? So I knew he was sincere. He, in his mind, he was loving his wife. But it wasn't connecting. And I just kept hearing those stories. And so eventually, I just took time to sit down and read several years of notes that I made and asked myself, when someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What, what were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. So, uh, you know, and then, so I, then I started using it in my counseling and then it affirmed, you know, wow, this is important. If people can get this simple concept, it's going to help their marriage. And in all these years later, it has continued to sell even more books each year than it did in the previous year, correct? It's amazed me. It sold, they told me the other day it sold 20 million copies now. It's been published in 60 languages all over the world. I, I just, you know, people ask me, how do I explain that? I said, well, the short answer is God. And the long answer is God. <laughs> I said, I couldn't have made that happen if I wanted to. was <laughs> such affirmation that uh, his plans are far greater than any that we could have on our own. Absolutely. So what does your writing process look like? Because I talk with so many different people and they say, well, sometimes I sit down and it just has to be a stream of consciousness. Obviously with yours, you had a lot of notes to sift through, but is this something that you sit down and work through pretty quickly? Or is this a labor of love that takes uh, place over a period of time? What I have done through the years is to take Thursday, typically Thursday, as a writing day and i say to my office you know if there's a if there's an emergency always call me i'll drop everything and come but otherwise uh, i take the morning and the afternoon uh on thursdays to write uh, it takes it takes longer to get books written like that you know I, I know people who go off for three weeks and just seclude themselves and write a book in three weeks uh, i've never been able to do that uh, but this works for me. I think every writer has to find kind of, the, you know, the way that works for them. But that, that works for me. Uh, but what I do when I choose a topic, uh, I kind of just lay out the ideas, not necessarily titles of chapters, but ideas of the chapters that seem to me to be logical. And uh, and then just kind of work on them, you know, one at a time as I work my way through it. And then, of course, I try to use a good number of, of illustrations of real people, you know, real situations, never using people's real names, of course. Sure. But uh, I think people identify with, with real, real life situations. In those instances, do you ever come across writer's block? And if so, how do you navigate that? You know, I, I haven't had a lot of that. I, I, I think there've been a few little, few times, but, you know, usually what I do when I sit down to write, I say, I say to God, I'm asking you to give me wisdom on this topic, bring to my mind things that, that I need to remember. So give me wisdom, because I learned a long time ago uh, what Jesus said is true. Without me, you can do nothing. <laughs> That's what he said. I learned that pretty young in my life. So 
I don't try to do anything without him. I just always ask him to give me wisdom. And I've done that in the counseling room as well. When I'd be sitting there in his early days and, and people would present their situation and I'm thinking to myself, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. You know, I just send up a silent prayer. I said, Lord, give me wisdom. You know, what, what, what would be helpful to this couple? And I have ideas that come to my mind that I would not have thought about on my own, you know. So I just think uh, all of us, no matter what we're doing, we, we need, we need to recognize we got to have God's help if we're going to do anything worthwhile. <laughs> you, uh, in five traits of a healthy family, you wrote about a young man named John who asked to be included in your family for a year. Uh, he didn't have the, the best uh, home life and example of a healthy family and a marriage, and he wanted to, to learn from your family and your marriage. Uh, what was your initial reaction when you got that request? <laughs> well, he was a recent college grad, and he moved to our city. He and two of the other guys were living in our city that summer. And he had a job in the fall to start teaching school locally. And so I knew him, you know, at least uh, some some knowledge of him those three months. Uh, but when he asked that of me, of course, I was shocked because I never, ever anticipated anybody asking if they could come and live with us. So I said what I think every wise husband would say. I said, well, John, let me let me talk to Carolyn about that. <laughs> <laughs> So I told Carolyn what he was requesting, and she said, well, you know, Gary, that might be good. I said, really? You you, you feel that way about it? She said, yeah. She said, look, he, he grew up in a dysfunctional family, and maybe just being around us would be a, a good this would be a good time. And I said, well, what do you think about the kids? And she said, well, I don't know. Let's ask them. So we talked to the kids about it, and, and uh, the kids said, oh, we'd like to have a big brother in the house, you know? So. We did. <laughs> and he looks back now, and he told me some time ago, he said, Gary, I cannot imagine what my life would have been like if I had not lived with y'all that year. He said it just, it, it, it gave me a picture, you know, of a healthy family. And he said, uh, and of course, he's grown now and married and has kids of his own. And uh, so, yeah, I've never had anybody ask me that since then. And uh, uh, at this juncture, I probably would have to say no. I would say ask Carolyn. I'm pretty sure Carolyn would say no. <laughs> but but at that juncture in our lives, it was a good thing for us and for him. Wow, what a gift for both of you, and and for the kids too. I think just having uh, that request made upon your family had to have been pretty flattering uh, and humbling. Uh, to, to know that you could make a positive impact in that way just by leading your lives the way that you do. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't change anything when he was there. You know, we did the same thing with the kids, We the routines that we had with them. He just was a part of it, you know. Yeah. So neat. The first trait you outline of a healthy family is service. And why is it that you believe service is so important to a healthy family? Well, I believe that an attitude of service is the foundation stone for everything else, not only in marriage, but in the whole of the Christian life. You know, Jesus said about himself, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for others. And he's our model. And I think every Christian that's really seeking to walk with God 
will pretty soon realize that this is the, this is the lifestyle of the Christian. We're here to serve other people, and so in a family, I think this is the foundation for having a healthy family. That the husband has the attitude, I'm, I'm here to serve my wife. I'm here to do everything I can to help her become the person she believes God wants her to be. And as parents, then we have an attitude of service to our children. And we want to serve them and help them grow up to be, you know, adults that will make a difference in the world. And and then we teach that to our children. You know, as, they, as they get appropriate ages, we're giving them things where they can serve us or serve each other. And then we take it outside the family uh, so that we the family gets the picture. Our family is about serving other people. And they're observing mom and dad doing that. And then they're doing it with us and certain things that we do. And so they grow up to have what I think is the Christian attitude. We're here to serve others. And so, uh, you know, it's very rewarding. I uh, look at our kids now. Of course, they're grown now. And, and uh, our daughter has her own, and her cousin has their own children. Our, our son and his wife couldn't have children. But they love children and work with other people's children. But to see them as adults with that same attitude of serving other people, you know, it's, it's very, very rewarding. For families who are curious to get into service more with their children, what are some ways in which um, you found it beneficial for families to serve within the community? Well, obviously it depends on their age. But I remember when our children, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, long in there, uh, I would get them in the car and put rakes in the trunk of the car and drive through the neighborhood in the fall when the leaves had all fallen and look for yards that had not been raked or blown. And uh, back in those days, people used rakes more than they did blowers. <laughs> and I would knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Gary Chapman. I live down the street here and I'm trying to teach my children how to serve other people. And if you don't mind, we'd like to rake your leaves. And they would say, say what? <laughs> and I'd repeat my little speech. And they'd say, oh, I'll pay you to rake my leaves. I've been trying to find someone to rake my leaves. I said, no, 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 I don't want money. I'm just trying to teach my children how to serve other people. Mm. We never had anyone that wouldn't let us rake the leaves. Oh, and the kids loved it. And the part they really liked is when you get the leaves all in a big pile, you jump in the pile, you know. <laughs> But it can be taking kids to a food pantry, you know, where you're where you're sorting food for people that that need the food. It can be anything you know, that's helping somebody else. Uh, I, I remember uh, when my son was a teenager uh, on a Saturday night. I used to go down once a month on Saturday night to the juvenile detention center and play ping pong with those young guys and talk to them. And so I started taking him with me. You know, we'd talk to the kid and we'd play ping pong and so forth and. But they would tell us, one of them would tell us our, his story, why, how he got there, you know. And we'd ride home and, and, and you know, just, just chat a little bit about it. Say, that sad man. He, he's just about your age. And he's incarcerated because he broke the law. You know? so it's just, you know, but, and my, and my son's still great at that. That's, that's what he does his whole life. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's a helper. <laughs> and my daughter's a medical doctor. He, she delivers high-risk babies. And, and loves what she does, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, that foundation is so important. And one of the things I miss the most, I was a, a teacher in my previous career and I taught in the alternative uh, school realm. So uh, students who are at risk of not graduating and uh, we had a mentoring program that uh, my husband participated in with me. And it was just luncheon with the teens uh, once a month 
and just mentoring, talking, hearing about the problems. And it was so fun for he and I to do that together. And we've talked recently about uh, wanting to do that again. And, uh, you know, with the kids' schedules right now, it's not quite as easy, but that is, uh, it gave us just as much as uh, it gave the teens. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah. The second trait you discuss of a healthy family is intimacy. And being that intimacy seems to be something that's so easy for couples uh, in the initial parts of a relationship. What do you see are common factors that lead to the demise of intimacy in a marriage? Well, I think, first of all, many men, when you say the word intimacy, their idea is, oh, that means the sexual part of marriage. But the first thing I'm trying to say in the book is it's far more than that. You know, it's intellectual intimacy. It's it's having talks like you did when you were dating. You know, so you hear what each other's thinking, your ideas, you know, your visions for the future and all those kind of things. It's emotional intimacy where you're sharing your emotions, you know, whether they're positive or negative. You're sharing them with each other so, because that's a part of our life. And it's social intimacy. You're doing things with other people as a couple. And it's spiritual intimacy. You're sharing your journey with God with each other. Uh, so, and then, yeah, physical intimacy, to be sure. But if you don't have intimacy in these other areas, then the sexual part of the marriage is not going to be what God designed it to be. Uh, so uh, if you first get that picture, you know, and then I think uh, we, we just recognize, that, look, this is the fundamental relationship in this family, is you and me. So let's let's keep it open. Let's keep close to each other. Let's let's be honest and open. Let's process life together. And in a healthy marriage, that's what it, that's what it looks like. And how do you start to bridge that gap? Because I I, I see this happen with couples and in talking with uh, friendships as if the wife doesn't feel emotionally connected, she doesn't want to be physically intimate and, and vice versa with the husband. So how does that bend start to happen? And how have you helped coach uh, partners to to start to come together again. Yeah, well, I think you have to recognize that that if there's not intimacy in these other areas, we're not going to have what we want to have in the sexual part of our marriage. And uh, if we just ignore that, and it's just you know just sexual parts all we've got going, it's just it's just a physical function that does not it's not a healthy marriage. Uh, so. I think we start by acknowledging uh, that we that maybe we've drifted from where we were, and let's let's make some decisions on what we need to do that will move us back. And you start taking steps, whether that's a, a weekly time, a weekly date night, you know, which you do something out just the two of you together, uh, you know, every week, or whether it's a daily sit down and listen time, you know, whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes that we just sit down and hear and just listen. Tell me what happened in your life today. You know, how do you feel about what happened in your life today? I mean, that's just a simple place to start. Uh, and so we, we just start wherever, but we've got to set aside time to keep the rest of our relationship close or, or we will not have what God intended us to have in this area of our lives. My parents have been married 51 years, and my mom has said several times that some of their best conversations happen in the car. And perhaps it's that. Uh, where you're not having to look right into each other's face. And if men have a harder time emoting or, or being vulnerable with that face-to-face -face contact, it allows them a little bit more to get 
comfortable. And I always thought that was interesting and good advice. If, you know, if, if it's on a car trip where you're connecting or something, find time to, to connect in those opportunities. Yeah, wherever it is, you know, whatever works for the individual couple. Right. Just as long as we keep the keep the doors open. <laughs> right, right. Whatever form. Yeah. Uh, you discussed the importance of parents who guide and the challenge of creative teaching. And we have two children. Uh, our daughter is a competitive dancer. Our son is a tri-sport athlete. And so you know, many nights it feels like we're ships passing in the night with different schedules. And we only have two kids. We have, you know, yeah. friends who have three, four kids. So what are some practical things families can do to carve out quality time amidst these busy schedules? Yeah, I think it's a challenge uh, for each family. And it's, and it's different for each family because of the work schedules of the, of the mom and the dad. Uh, and also the schedules, as you mentioned, of the children, because many times they're in different interests, you know. And so we're sometimes we even have to split up and one goes with one to the event and the other goes with the other one <laughs> to the event. Uh, but I like to remind parents, uh, you know, they're only there for 18 years. So just keep that in the back of your mind. You don't have to do this forever. Uh, so. Uh, spending time with the children is exceedingly important. Uh, just like God loved us and gave us rules to live by, you know, God says, here's things, don't do these things, but do these things. Everything, every commandment of God in the Bible grew out of his love for us. He wants us to have the best possible life on earth as well as spend eternity with him. Well, as parents, we he's our model. So we want to have guidelines that we give our children. These are some things we don't do. These are some things we do. And then we want to Tell them what the consequences will be if they don't follow the rule. And and children will understand that, you know. Uh, my son, for example, when he was, uh, I forget how old he was, but he, we got him a bicycle. And uh, we said, now, you know, every night before you come in, you have to put the bicycle in the shed. Don't leave it out all night. And if you do leave it out, you don't get to ride the bicycle the next day. Okay. Well, yeah, it's okay, Dad. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, simple. So the first time it happened that he left it outside, and I said to oh, Derek, I said, son, remember, you were supposed to put the bicycle in the shed at night, and you didn't. So you remember the consequences, right? You don't get to ride the bicycle today. He said, oh, Dad, he said, all the guys are going to be riding this this afternoon. And, and, and Dad, well, let, me, let me ride today, Dad, and, and I won't ride tomorrow. And I said, you know, Derek, I can understand how you're feeling, man. And if I were in your age, your age and in your position, I'd probably feel the same way, man. I'm going to be out there riding with my friends. I said, but Derek, we have to follow the guidelines. And I said, I love you too much not to let you follow the guidelines. So I'm sorry if you can't ride today. He never left his bike out another time. Mm, it's not something. It, you know, it's suffering the consequences that children learn to obey their parents. You know, and, uh, and and the parents are the authority in the home. Children are not to be running homes. Parents are the ones. We know more than they do, and we want to have guidelines that are going to help them become healthy adults down the road. Yeah, it, it's so true. If you in that section where you're discussing this. You know, you talk about um, obeying and honor, honoring the parents. And I think obey, the 
even just that term has gotten a bad rap in our society. And I mean, obey really just means to behave in accordance with a general principle. So if you think about modern society, I think part of the problem is we don't have general principles as much as we used to. Um, and, and so I think it's even all the more important that we establish those in the family because, um, you know, if, if you're not, what is the, the saying about can't stand for something, you'll fall for anything? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think um, it is, it seems as though children are more disobedient or not uh, honoring their elders and their parents as in years past? Well, I think a part of it is there are so many homes in our culture where there is no father in the home. It's a single mom. And I, I have great admiration for single moms because it wasn't designed to be that way. The plan, the healthy plan is there's a husband and there's a wife, there's a mother and there's a daddy who work together as a team. But I think uh, I think sometimes because of the absence of parents in the home to, to you know be a part of helping them live by guidelines, uh, and maybe they disrespect. Sometimes if the, if the father is, you know, out of the picture, they, they, they don't have respect for fathers, and they don't even know what a father's supposed to be like. And I have school teachers, public school teachers say to me, Gary, I spend half of my time just trying to keep order in the classroom so I can teach because the children have no respect for the authority. And because they didn't learn in the home that mom is the authority. Mom and dad are the authorities. Or if it's this mom, then mom is the authority. And so, you know, I have to obey what mom says. And if they learn to respect the parents as being the, the authority in the home, then they take that to school with them. Uh, so I think that's why we've had so much trouble in schools is because they've never learned to respect authority of anybody. And you go up to adulthood, and, and what happens is what's happening in our country today. People do crazy, wild things, you know, uh, and think nothing of it. And and now it seems like the culture is just kind of affirming that. You know, you can rob stores and it won't matter. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it, it's, it's sad. It's sad. But I, it all grows out of the home. That's why a healthy family is fundamental to the larger culture. And you do such a great job of explaining how to set those guidelines and structure with love and with understanding. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be. Um, you even give examples as to if if you are feeling yourself getting frustrated and you're shouting, you know, that's that that's not the way to handle it. Try staying calm, uh, validating their feelings. I know like you did with your son. I know this yeah. is tough. If I were you, I would want to ride my bike, too. But this is this is for your own good. And yeah. and I, I, I promise you probably won't leave your bike out again. <laughs> Which That's right. Awesome. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah. And also, if you can wrap the discipline in their love language, it's so much the better. You know, if their language is words, you can say, you know, Johnny, I'm 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 so proud of you because you normally keep the rules, but you know, this time you broke it. Yeah. So you know, we're gonna have to suffer the consequences. But listen, I love you, man. Yeah, I'm I'm proud of you. You know, so whatever you kind of wrap it in love, and they and they feel the love. I don't mean they'll be happy that they have to suffer the consequences, but but they in their heart they understand. Yeah, this is right. This is what should be happening. Yeah, the love languages. So first of all, 
I, I reference it so many times on the podcast. I think it's just such an important uh, tool to be able to know uh, with your partner, with your kids, with your coworkers, family members. Um, at, when I was teaching, I taught a, a communications class and my students took the love language quiz and then they'd be texting their results to their friends or their family members. And it was always so fun to see those aha moments click. Yeah. What's interesting to me is I was always physical touch and words of affirmation. And since becoming a parent, my acts of service has gone up significantly. <laughs> yes. Common? Yes, yes. Yeah. I think uh, seasons of life and circumstances, another love language will jump to the top. As you say, acts of service may not have been the language, the primary language, but when you have two preschool children, it's going to jump to the top because you're overwhelmed. You know, you you need more help. So, yeah, I think circumstances and seasons of life, uh, you know, another love language can jump to the top. But I do think that the love language tends to stay with us, you know, throughout life with those exceptions, of course. In troubled marriages, when you saw people starting to speak each other's love languages, um, more effectively, did you see a remarkable turnaround? Was that part of your early work that led to the the book? Yeah, radical changes. I mean, I've had couples who once I share the concept and they take the quiz and learn each other's language, or, and I discuss it with them and challenge them to go home and try it for the next three weeks. Come back after three weeks and say, Gary, this this is changing everything. I mean, we feel differently toward each other now. This is this is this is making a big difference in our life. And when I do marriage conferences, which I do on Saturdays, uh, ten or twelve of those a year, my publisher sets those up all over the country on Saturdays. Uh, I'll have half a dozen people come up at least and say, "Gary, I just want to, we just wanted to tell you that book saved our marriage. We were at the end. We we didn't see any hope, and we read that book, and the lights came on, and we realized how we missed each other." And we took the quiz and we learned each other's language. We started speaking it. It literally saved our marriage. So, yeah, that, that book's been tremendously rewarding. Uh, and, and because one of our basic needs is to feel loved, you know, by the significant people in our life. And I say to parents, you know, the question is not do you love your children? The question is do your children feel loved? So let's learn their primary language. Let's give heavy doses of that. But let's also speak the other four because we would like for the child to learn how to receive and give love in all five languages. That's the healthiest adult. And most of us did not receive all five growing up. So we come to adulthood and we don't know how to speak some of them. But the good news is we can learn as an adult when we see how important it is. We can learn to speak a language we didn't receive. What is your love language, if I might ask? Words of affirmation. And my wife is acts of service. Okay. So I do wash dishes. I do vacuum floors. I do take out the trash. She tells me I'm the greatest husband in the world. <laughs> it's a hyperbole, but it feels good to me. <laughs> uh, so this, um, you have, sorry, I've got my, oh, I was nervous my computer was going to get knocked down. I've got a big Newfoundland roaming around over here. Oh, oh. <laughs> Um, are there love languages that are just so incompatible that it'd be too difficult to have a, a, a good relationship with? I don't think so. 
I do think that if if you're number five, the one that's least important to you, is number one for your spouse, there is a learning curve, no question about it. Because first of all, you can't imagine why that would be important to anyone. But if you accept the reality that it is important to them, then you can learn to speak that language. And that that's the good news. Uh, I've had people say to me, I had a husband say some time ago, he said, Gary, he said, my wife's language is words of affirmation. I don't know how to do that. He said, I didn't receive any positive words growing up. All I was ever told was I was lazy and I wasn't going to amount to anything. And he said, I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, you are where you are. You know, we can't change our history. I said, but here's the good news. You can learn to speak this language as an adult, even though you didn't receive it. And I said, tell me three things that your wife is good at. And he thought a moment. He said, well, she's a good cook. And she's a good school teacher. And she's a good mother. And I wrote out two or three sentences beside each one of those. I said, now, here's your assignment. Like on the cooking, honey, I haven't told you this, but I, I really appreciate all the meals you cook. You're a good cook. And just two or three sentences. Go home twice a day. Get in a room by yourself and read these out loud. So you hear yourself saying these things. I said, when you come back next week, I want you to be able to say them without looking at your notes. And he came back and he did. I said, okay, here's your assignment. The next three weeks, you give her one of these each week. I don't care what order, but you just use one of these each week. And he came back and I said, well, did you do it? He said, yeah, I did it. I said, how'd your wife respond? He said, well, on the third week, she said to me, what's going on with you? I have never heard you give me so many compliments. I said, what did you say? He said, I said, well, honey, you remember we read that book and we took that quiz and your language is words of affirmation. And I'm just trying to learn how to speak those words because I do love you. She said, oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> so that's the good news. You know, even if you, uh, even if it's a, a learning curve, you can learn. And if you understand why it's so important, you're motivated to learn to speak their language. Absolutely. Uh, well, the, there was a research um, a study came out by Pew Research Center, and they found that religious people are happier. And clearly with your background and the way you lead your life, um, I know you would agree with that. Why do you think that it is uh, a, a spiritual connection as the foundation of uh, happiness? Because that really is the undertone of of what you bring forward. Yeah, I think because by nature, we are all self-centered. Now, there's a good part to that. It means we feed ourselves, we get exercises, you know, we get sleep, etc. But when that becomes selfishness, that is, our attitude is, I'm in this world to get something out of it for myself. And if I'm married, I'm in this marriage for you to make me happy. And this is where so many of the, of the world is today. And so they say to their spouse after some time, I'm out of here because you're not making me happy. Well, Christian cannot live, the true Christian cannot live with that attitude. Because I mentioned earlier, Christ himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for us. We don't have to give our lives a ransom. He did that already. But we're here to serve others. And as Christians, to a greater or lesser degree, 
we began to see this is this is where God wants me to be. And we start asking God, give me that attitude. I want to have the attitude of Christ. Peter said about Jesus, he went about doing good. That's what God wants to be able to be said about us. He went about doing good. He went about doing good. So I think Christians have outside help. And we can honestly say to God, Lord, you know, I don't have very positive feelings right now toward my spouse or somebody else. But I know you love them. So I'm asking you, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, pour your spirit into your love into my heart by your spirit. Let me be your agent for loving them. So you move out, not with positive feelings necessarily, but you move out with the power of God's help to communicate love in their language even though you don't feel love toward them. But what happens is it stimulates love in them emotionally, and then they speak your language, and now the emotions come back. So we don't let emotions control our behavior. We let the Spirit and the Word of, the Word of God guide our behavior. And th- thankfully, God will help us do what's right. Mm. Thank you so much for that. I can't imagine anybody tuning in who's not going to leave feeling totally inspired and uplifted. And um, I'm just so grateful for the work that you have done. Uh, the love languages has been a part of my life for so long. And um, the five traits of a healthy family, I can't wait for more people to tune into that and to learn from you. Um, your work is uh, so important, and I just I really thank you for your time and, and for sharing with us today. Well, thank you, Lindsay. It was good chatting with you. Keep yeah. up the good work of helping people as well as trying to enrich your marriage. And you know, in families, we 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 want to keep growing, otherwise we just drift and it regresses. So if we can take a step or two along the way and keep growing, that's what we want for all of us and all all of your listeners as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Gary. I appreciate it. Thank you.